Well, you might be surprised to see me here. Good news. Not only did I get to deliver the transitional message last week, but I get to introduce the new topic this week. That's a great thing for me. I love it. So the new series is on connecting, and today's message is Connecting Part 1. So, uh, actually, there it is, right? Connecting Part 1, Breaking the Bond of Inertia. How do you like it? Sounds good? Good. Okay, so let's get the ball rolling, shall we? Okay, maybe first thing I need to do is explain why that joke was funny. <clears throat> so there was this guy. His name was Isaac Newton. Okay, And in 1687, he wrote a book. Uh, the book is called The Principia, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. Nobody's read it. Okay. Um, in that book, he wrote out three laws that pertain to how things move in nature, the three laws of motion. Actually, he borrowed some from people who went before him, but he gets the credit because he wrote it down. So, uh, still not funny. Um, okay, well, the first law... That, that Newton stated is this. Um, every body perseveres in a state of rest or of uniform motion in a right line unless it is compelled to change that state by forces imposed thereon. Still not funny. Um, this law became known as the law of inertia. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> things that are moving continue to move. Things that are not moving continue not moving unless something else moves them or stops them. So let me try it again, okay? Uh, the title of this message is Connecting Part 1, Breaking the Bond of Inertia. So let's get the ball rolling, shall we? Yeah. Okay, okay. So, so you get it. Get the ball rolling, overcoming inertia. Ball, roll, never mind. In, <laughs> instead of a joke, uh, instead of a joke, let me... Focus for a minute on something meaningful. Inertia is meaningful. Um, actually, Newton's first law of motion, let me just state it more simply. Um, inertia is the tendency to resist change in motion. The tendency to resist change in motion. Uh, the fact of the matter is that people are a lot like things. We tend to resist change. Okay. When we're not doing something, we tend to just go on not doing it. 
Right. And it's hard to get us moving, isn't it? Uh, if we're used to doing something, uh, it's hard to get us to stop. For example, uh, let me see, connecting with our neighbors. How's that? Uh, some of us do it all the time. And some of us do it not at all. So two questions to ask about connecting with our neighbors. Uh, do I connect in a way that introduces them to Jesus? If the answer is either I don't connect or I don't introduce them to Jesus, the second question becomes, what will it take for me to begin connecting or to refocus the way I connect so that my connecting introduces people to Jesus? Either way, the answer is pretty straightforward. It's going to take a miracle and a lot of hard work. A miracle because it's God who will have to change us. A lot of hard work because we're going to have to cooperate with him. So, no wonder we naturally resist. It just, that is so important that I think we need to pray about it. So let me guide us in prayer before I leave all the funny stuff and move on to the serious stuff. Heavenly Father, um, we are that way. We resist change. We get comfortable. We resist change. We get comfortable doing things a certain way or we think we have the right reason and we resist change. We think that the way we do things is the way to do them. Um, move us today to recognize that your way is the right way. And let us not just sit still and not keep moving in the wrong direction, but set us moving in your direction. For the sake of your name, for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. You've never seen me up here with a highlighter before. I know because I've been here every time. And I've seen me not have a highlighter up here. But what you have seen me do is get lost in my notes. So this highlighter is going to keep me on track. Can you imagine the power in a highlighter? <clears throat> Well, here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to show us three examples from Scripture about people who were dealing with inertia. Well, really, it's about how God dealt with people's inertia. So the first person is a person who was not doing what God wanted him to do. And the story will tell us what God had to do to get him going. The second thing, the second example, is of an army, an entire army that was not doing what God wanted them to do, and what God had to do to get them going. The third example is of a person who was doing things he thought God wanted him to do, and what God had to do to get him to change direction. So, here we go. Let's get rolling. 
The Inertia of Moses. Now you can find this story in the book of Exodus from chapter 1, verse 8, all the way through chapter 40, verse 38. And if you really want to get the whole story, you can go through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. But let's just focus on this portion of Moses' life. So what was Moses' setting? That is, how did he get to where he was not doing what God wanted him to do? Well, we have to consider Israel. That's Moses' people. We have to consider Israel in Egypt from the time of Joseph up to the time of Moses. See, Joseph at one point in time was the second most powerful man on the planet, second only to the Pharaoh of Egypt. His people, literally his family, Joseph's family, were honored in Egypt. And that's pretty much all we are told about the next 400 years. Uh, during that 400 years, Israel experienced a huge change in their status in Egypt. Um, so that by the time we get to Exodus 1, verses 8 and 9, we read this. A king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are more and mightier than we are. He went on to press the children of Israel into slavery, but the more they, that is, the more the Egyptians, persecuted them, the more, the more the Egyptians persecuted the Israelites, uh, the more the Israelites multiplied. Remember, the problem from Pharaoh's perspective was there's more of them than there are of us, so let's beat them down. And then there are even more. Um, so Pharaoh had a plan to keep the population of Israel down. He would simply kill all the male children. And then in time, uh, the population would eventually begin to fall off. So, enter Moses. Uh, we all know the story of how Moses' mother had Moses' sister, Miriam, set the baby, Moses, adrift on the Nile in a boat made out of reeds and aim that boat very strategically at Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, we also know that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household until about 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Jewish slave, an Israelite slave. Moses rose up, killed the Egyptian, and ran away for the next 40 years. During those years, Moses met a man who had seven daughters, fortunately for him. And he had some sheep. Uh, Moses became the man's shepherd and actually married uh, one of this man's daughters. And they had children. Moses was a family man now with a full-time job, was probably set for life because his dad was somewhat wealthy, or his father-in-law was somewhat wealthy. Moses had this permanent job, he had his wife, he had his kids, 
things are good, he hits his 80th birthday and everything falls apart. So what was Moses' bond of inertia? What is it that kept him stationary? Well, up to this point, it seems to me to be apparent that God had preserved and directed Moses' life for a purpose. Uh, I believe that God revealed that reason in Exodus 3.10 when he said, I will surely send you to Pharaoh so that you can bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. That was Moses' purpose. See, the thing is that God said this from the middle of a bush that was on fire but not burning. So the question had to be, why did he do that? Why a burning bush? What was it about Moses that made God have to do a miracle to get his attention? So I've told you everything Scripture says about Moses' domestic life. That's all there is. I mean, it's just a few verses on a page. Uh, Anything we come up with about what Moses might have thought about his life, it'll all be conjecture. But Moses was a real person, and uh, he had real life concerns. So rather than say stuff about Moses, uh, let's just imagine ourselves in a situation like that um, and ask ourselves, what kind of things could keep me from hearing God's voice if I'm married, have a family, a steady job, potential future? What kind of things could keep me from hearing God's voice? Which of us would quickly give up a job like that. Our family, security, comfort. Which of us would give those things up? Just, yeah, okay, I'll leave here and go confront the most powerful man in the world. Uh, So, which of us is not afraid of the unknown? If we had like Moses, committed murder, would we not be afraid of returning to the scene of the crime? I would. I would go some other direction. So Moses, just from a human perspective, he had a lot of good reasons to not change anything about his life. He was comfortable. He had a job. He had security He had a wife and children. The American dream. 1,500 years before, well, more than that, 2,500 years, 3,500 years before there was an America. He had it. He had what we all want. He was comfortable. He had a good job. He had a wife and children. He may have been afraid of losing all that, and he may have been afraid of his past crimes catching up with him. So Moses had at least five good reasons to resist change in his life. 
he had inertia. He was set, solid, immovable. The interesting thing about inertia is this, that the heavier an object is, the more inertia it has. So those were five weighty reasons why Moses should not change. Moses had massive inertia. Well, what then did God do to break the bond of Moses' massive inertia? God did a lot of things. Okay? God called Moses' name from the middle of a burning bush. You've seen the movie, right? Moses. Right? That just, whoa, I have to turn aside and look at this. He called his name from the middle of a burning bush. That would get my attention. It's probably why so many single women have lit fires outside bedroom windows, but that's a different story. Um, God called his name from the middle of a bush. Wouldn't that get your attention? Suppose you were in the backyard with your fire pit going, there's a bonfire there, right? Do I need to say more about that? No, enough said. Second thing God did, he told Moses his name, God's name. Moses, who are you? I am who I am. God held a conversation with Moses. This is what I want you to do. I can't do that. I can't speak well. Who made your mouth? And then on and on and on. He made a promise. God made a promise, not just to Moses, but to all of Moses' people. Uh, God, you know, kind of switched direction right there. God gave Moses a different job and a vision, a big vision. He turned Moses' staff into a snake. He gave Moses leprosy and healed it. He assured Moses that his crime had been forgotten. He forgave Moses. He gave Moses a business partner. I'll send your brother. See, it takes a lot of effort, and God gave forth a lot of effort to overcome inertia, especially Moses' massive inertia, right? It, it, it just takes a lot of effort, and once the bond of inertia is broken, then amazing things can happen. Because if, you're in, if your inertia is, don't move, and you have massive inertia, once a big enough force is applied to get you moving, now you have moving inertia. And that inertia is just as big as the stationary kind of inertia. So since Moses had this massive inertia, since God put forth this massive effort to move Moses, what kind of changes resulted? Because inertia about things, you know, is the resistance to change in motion. But in people, 
inertia is the tendency to remain the same, either not doing something or doing something. So what were the changes that followed for Moses? Well, Moses turned from a fugitive into a liberator. He became God's representative. He went from obscure shepherd to international influencer. He spoke to God face to face. He became a national leader. He became the priest of a nation. He went from lawbreaker to become the lawgiver. Is there more? Yes. There's a lot more. But this is enough to illustrate the truth that once God overcomes the things that keep us from following him, once he breaks the bond of our inertia, there is no limit to what he can accomplish in and through us. Okay, so that took a little time. The next two examples, I'll move a little more quickly. My second example, God changes the inertia of an army as they face Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 58, see, it's only one chapter. Uh, here's the story of uh, that, what was going on. Uh, we actually know the story. Saul is the king of Israel. Uh, the Philistines gathered for battle against Saul and Israel. The two armies, they were arrayed one against the other, one on this mountain, one on the opposite side with the valley of Elah between them. From their two vantage points on the, on the mountains, they could each watch the daily routine unfold as the Philistine champion, Goliath, who was nine and a half feet tall, called on Saul to send one man against him in a contest that would decide the whole battle. Winner take all. The ritual went on for 40 days in a row. One army here on the hillside, one army here on the hillside. One giant man walks into the middle of the valley and says, Come on, anybody. Nobody takes the challenge. Until 40 days had gone by. Until Goliath had taunted the army of Israel for 40 days. Until, after 40 days of cowering, the battle-hardened troops of Israel shook in their boots and a child walked forth and burst on the scene. What was the bond of inertia that held the army of Israel from engaging in what God wanted for them? What held the army of Israel back from entering the battle and gaining the victory and gathering the spoils of war and expanding the territory of Israel and vanquishing their enemy 
what stood in the waves were almost certainly fear. If they got one guy that big, how big are the rest of them? Maybe fear of death, fear of pain, fear of defeat, fear of enslavement to the Philistines, fear of losing their life or freedom or their families. All valid, all weighty reasons to avoid going to war. But avoiding war was not God's plan. Winning a war was God's plan. So what did God have to do to break the bond of inertia and get the history back on track? Well, God displayed his faithfulness and power in another miracle. Isn't that, that's just the pattern, you know? When, when God's people display inertia, God has to display power. So God displays his faithfulness and his power in another miracle. He uses David, a scrappy youth. How young was he? Well, he was not grown into a man. He was too small to wear man-sized armor. He was too small to wield a sword and carry a shield. He was a shepherd boy armed with a sling, you know, a little patch of leather about that big and two leather thongs, maybe about three feet long each. <clears throat> he could carry that, that and a few smooth stones, and huge faith in God. And he stood alone against this nine-foot, six-inch-tall Goliath of Gath. And God used David right there to perform a miracle. He used David to take Goliath out with one shot from his sling, removing Goliath's head from his shoulders with Goliath's own sword. So what did God do to break the bond? He did a miracle. He also shocked both Israel and the Philistines. And he encouraged the Israeli army to action. In fact, he reminded them of the role that faith plays in bringing about God's will. He did that through David's declaration going into the situation. God then reminded them <clears throat> that they were children of a promise. There's a promise to your ancestors that you will survive. And he reminded them that you are my people. You are the people of God. That's what God had to do in order to break the bond of inertia that held the army of Israel still. And something changed as a result. So what was the, that, uh, what was the change that followed? And the change that followed was huge and immediate. You see, Israel found their courage and they charged into battle. God gave the Philistines into their hands, and not just the group that was on the mountain across the valley from them, but all of the Philistines, all the way back to Goliath's hometown. They ransacked all of the encampments of the Philistines. The nation 
was secure against Philistia, at least for a while. David was brought into the palace, and he was treated as part of the king's own family. And Israel's most famous king and kingdom were established as a result of this. Okay, two examples. Here's a third example. Uh, the third example shows us what God can do once he breaks the bond of inertia in someone who believes he's following God but is really going the wrong way. The third example I call from Saul to Paul. You find it in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 24. The setting is this. It's several months after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel has begun to reach out from Jerusalem into the entire province of Judea and into the surrounding areas. And literally thousands are coming to faith in Jesus. A bold follower of Jesus named Stephen gives a powerful testimony to the life of Jesus. And uh, that stirs up anger in a mob. It stirs them up so much that uh, they stone him to death. And watching this whole thing happen is a young Pharisee named Saul. <clears throat> Saul, in fact, fully supports what this mob is doing, stoning this guy to death. Um, and later on, Saul's wrong-headed zeal uh, for the law, that is, the way he saw the law, uh, it actually leads him to ravage followers of Jesus, going as far as to force his way into their homes and uh, placing them in prison. I mean, this guy is sold out. He is, he is doing what he believes God wants him to do. So what is the bond of inertia in his life. Well, Saul had incredible pride. That was just a mark of who the Pharisees were. And he had youthful zeal. He was intense. Uh, he was a Pharisee. And as such, he was a student of the law of Moses. One might say, that the Pharisees actually had an unhealthy relationship to the law. It actually bordered on obsession uh, or even idolatry. Because they didn't really study God's law. They studied what they believed about God's law. That was their idol. So obviously, Saul had an idea of what God wanted from him. He was pursuing what he thought God wanted him to do. He was headed in the wrong direction. God needed to break the bond of inertia in that wrong direction and get Saul going the right way. So what did God do to break the bond of Saul's inertia? Well, 
He stopped Saul dead in his tracks through a miracle. Right? Bright, shining light. A voice that sounded like thunder that only Saul could understand. So God stopped Saul in his tracks through a miracle. He struck Saul blind. He gave him a personal message, a lot like Moses. He warned him of his future. He gave Saul a mentor and a new name. And actually, personally taught Saul where he was wrong. That's an amazing story. Read the book of Galatians sometime. So what change followed that? Well, obviously, Saul became Paul. He changed from persecutor to persecuted. He changed from persecutor of Jesus to follower of Jesus. He abandoned everything that he held to be important as a Pharisee. And he became an itinerant preacher, an apologist for faith in Christ, and he became an apostle. Okay, so there's three examples. What do we learn from that? I mean, what can we conclude from those examples? Well, here we have three examples of God literally intervening in and changing the direction of lives of people in order to fulfill His will in their lives and achieve greater things through them than they could ever have imagined. Okay, your pastors and elders, we believe that God wants to do the same thing in us. We believe he wants to do greater things than we can imagine by working in us to connect us with our neighbors in a way that introduces them to Jesus. But we may be bound by a little inertia, a little inertia of our own. And uh, he may have to break the bond of inertia for us. Anybody here ready to see God do a miracle? So what is our setting? Well, each of us has things that make it hard for us to start moving or to change the direction in which we're moving. And as a body of believers, we may have to overcome things that either keep us from engaging or maybe change the way we engage in order to accomplish a different purpose. We may have to change the way we think about what it means to follow Jesus in our lives. So that's our setting. But what is the bond of inertia that we face? Well, some of us are like Moses. We have huge, massive inertia. And we need to break the bonds that keep us ambivalent um, when it comes to pursuing 
God's plan for our lives. I mean, so many of us would just much rather play our video games. Um, we need to overcome our love of comfort. We have that, just like Moses had. Uh, we may need to overcome our need for security. Uh, we may need to overcome insecurities uh, or maybe past failures or family ties. There are a lot of things that may bind us in inertia. Uh, in some ways, we are like the army of Israel, right? We're afraid of conflict or of what entering into battle might mean for us, what it might cost us. In some ways, we are like Saul. Uh, we are pursuing our historical belief above God's direction. We need to be changed. So what will it take for God to break the bonds of inertia and get us moving in his direction? Or any direction for some of us, uh, very simply, it will take a miracle. Is that so simple? I think it is for God, but it's not for us. That's why, to us, it's a miracle. Uh, God must move, and he must change us so that we move with him better. So what change does God want to see as a result of this? Well, your pastors and elders believe that... Uh, our hearts, we believe with all our hearts that God wants Alliance Bible Church to fulfill a specific purpose. The purpose is this. Now, this is not our purpose statement, but this is one of the things our purpose statement means. We exist as followers of Jesus to bring the Father glory by developing other followers of Jesus. All right? Put the two pieces of our purpose statement and our strategy together, and you get that. But we also believe this, that we exist as a fellowship. Now, that was talking about us as individuals, right? Individually following Jesus in order to help develop other followers of Jesus. But as a group, as a fellowship, we exist to strengthen and cooperate with one another as we pursue reason number one, as we pursue becoming disciples who connect and develop other disciples. Well, how will that come about? I think it's pretty straightforward. God's got to do something. It's got to be a miracle. See, God must move us to connect with our lost neighbors. And he must move us to strengthen one another, to learn from one another, to work with one another, to connect with our lost neighbors. Okay. So what? We can talk about theory all day. But so what? We all have ways we need to change in order to be the people that God is calling us to be. But how do we do that? 
Easy enough. We all have two choices. Cooperate with God or resist Him. So we, your pastors and elders, encourage you, we urge you, when it comes to connecting with your neighbors, cooperate with God. Just decide. I'm going to cooperate with God. And then become proactive. That is, ask God to reveal what he wants you to do, even before he tells you. Okay, God, I'm going to cooperate. What do you want me to do? Choose to go his way. So he does not have to become that massive force that breaks our inertia. All right? Minimize your inertia. Become lighter. Burdened with fewer presuppositions, fewer perspectives, fewer ideas. Let God's ideas permeate. And then learn from one another, especially those who already do connecting well. I learn from my wife because she does connecting really well. And I do nothing really well at least when it comes to connecting. Oh no, I have massive inertia. Anyway, um, <clears throat> see now everybody's going to remember. So come on up, let's, let's sing this last song. Um, well, I, I am certainly glad that the end of the message was more funny than the beginning. <laughs>